folks, this is Kevin. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, okay. That was me. No, that was not me, folks. This is Kevin. That was a Risk fan named Corey Cruz. Now, more on that jackass in just a bit. But what I, the real Kevin, need to tell you now is that on this week's episode, you'll hear Aaron Papelka. All seven of us are just standing in a circle, jacking off these imaginary air boners. That and more. But before that, I want to give a shout out to our new patron, Len Tooley. Oh, thank you so much, Len Tooley. We always like to thank the fans by name on the show. If they give $25 or more per month to help keep risk running at patreon.com slash risk. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash risk. You can give any amount per month that you choose and you'll know. You're contributing to our ability to continue creating episodes like this one you're about to hear, which is filled with the kind of storytelling you are not going to hear anywhere else. Plus, there's a ton of great bonus content for all our patrons, bonus stories, photos, videos, information on how to tell stories, all that. And you'll be an essential part of the Risk community by joining us at patreon.com slash risk. Now, what the fuck was that at the beginning of this? Hey, folks, this is Kevin. Right? That was a guy named Corey Cruz, risk fan. He sent in a clip of himself imitating me, and he emailed saying, hey, I'll bet other risk fans get a kick out of imitating Kevin, too. Maybe you could encourage the fans to send in recordings of their own imitations. All right, so, great. We're going to do this, all right? You go to our Patreon page, if, if you're a patron of ours, we're going to post a script there of things I say on the show. And in one of our upcoming episodes, we're, <laughs> we're going to have a group-sourced hosting of the show with all of you playing me. Right. So if you're a patron of ours, go to Patreon, you find the script there, and it'll give you instructions on how to send us your recordings of fans imitating Kevin. Also, I promise I'll do a new stamps.com song soon. But in the meantime, we're just going to keep talking this shit out, right? You know, you can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, any class of mail using your own computer and printer via stamps.com. Come on, guys. You can avoid the hassle of going to the post office. You can mail everything from postcards to envelopes to packages, domestic or international. You can create your own stamps.com account in minutes online with no equipment to lease, no long-term commitments. It's so easy and convenient and reliable. We use stamps.com at risk and the story studio, and we love it. They'll send you a digital scale that automatically calculates exact postage. Stamps.com will even help you decide the best class of mail based on your needs. And right now, you can enjoy the stamps.com service with a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus postage and a digital scale with no long-term commitments. Go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in risk. That's stamps.com, enter risk. Stamps.com, 
never go to the post office again. Now here's the show. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is the Bobby Hughes experience behind me now. Now, we're calling this week's episode Live from Seattle 3. Now, we only recorded this live show just a little over a week ago, but I I have to tell you, I was so stunned about that particular evening of storytelling. I just wanted to get it out there. ASAP. You know, I can get very impatient that way sometimes when things like this happen. I'm just like, you guys got to hear this. You got to hear this right now. It was maybe our third or fourth time at the Vera Project in Seattle. And, well, I'll tell you, there are some big, big laughs in this show. But there's also some very intimate and very intense emotions in this evening. <laughs> there was there was a lot of hugging going on after the show among the audience that night. I, I'm so grateful. I'm truly grateful that our live audiences are just so open-hearted. Holy crap, it is really something to experience. I mean, if you think the podcast can get emotional... When you're right there in the room <laughs> with the storyteller looking right at you, yeah, that can be that can be quite a potent combination. I also we we didn't want this episode to go on too long, so there is one wonderful story from this particular evening by Sue's Ballout that we're gonna put on a future episode. We wanted to keep it just to three for this this particular outing. Now our first Two stories today come from young women who had never done this sort of thing before. Totally brand new sort of experience, getting up on stage and talking like this. So they were really taking a risk. Uh, In a little bit, we're going to hear from Tondi Davis. But before that, a little something from Aaron Popelka, who you can find at popelicopter.com. Here she is now, Aaron Popelka with a story we call Dramatic Reenactment. in northern Japan, uh, and it was a city. Like, it was the only major city in this big rural area. And it was really cold there. It was basically like Japanese Fargo. 
<laughs> and like Fargo, movie Fargo, it was really weird there. Um, it was growing, but there was all of these abandoned buildings everywhere, including an entire German theme park that had just closed one day, and it was left as is with food still on the table and gifts still in the gift shop. There was this bar that was called Touch Me, Touch You, and it wasn't so much a bar as like a live sex show. And there was this, these Yakuza, these Japanese mafia, they were really active there and they were really weird. There was this one who had like just a full business suit, but it was all leather. And another one who wore a top hat everywhere. And they all drove around in these white vans with Disney murals painted on the side. <laughs> And not to like get kids, nothing creepy, just they liked it. <laughs> and so I came to Japanese Fargo to work at the city hall as kind of a, a community coordinator. I planned international events. And one Saturday, I was driving to one of these events, uh, Books of the World. And I had my friend Amanda with me in the car because we were going to read uh, children's books together. So we're sitting at a red light in my car, and we are dancing to uh, the song Boom I Fucked Your Boyfriend. <laughs> you know that one? Like, if you got a boyfriend, you better hold him on tight, because I'm the kind of girl that makes your man feel Yeah, it's, it's a good song. Uh, so we're dancing, and I look, and I see the car next to us. There's this guy with spiky hair, kind of attractive, younger, in a tracksuit, and he is, like, dancing with us. And I elbow a man, and I'm like, hey, like, look at that guy. He's dancing with us. And she turns to look and she screams because he is not dancing, he is flashing us. <laughs> and he has somehow managed to get his hips up above the steering wheel and he is pushing a giant erection up into the window glass at us. And then he's kind of like pointing at it and smiling like, Ey! like he's like the Fonzie of boners. <laughs> We're like, what do we do? So like, well, we gotta do something. So we put up our middle fingers like, yeah, and then we remember that we're in Japanese Fargo and he doesn't know what that means. So we just start like punching the air and making these angry faces like, we're angry at you, you can't do that. And Amanda's like got her fingers out like guns, like pew, 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 pew. And he just responds by masturbating frantically. <laughs> With two hands because it's so big and he is not breaking eye contact so like now what like then we thought license plate so I start searching for a pad of paper and a pen like just as frantically as he is masturbating and I find it and I hold it up and I'm like hey I'm the Fonzie of writing down your license plate and he sees it and he panics and he smile wipes off his face he falls back into his seat the dick flops against the steering wheel and he puts the car in reverse and he speeds out of the intersection but I got the number and then we drove to my work and called the police and about 15 minutes later we are standing in the middle of my office which is an open workspace by the way and we are surrounded by five police officers and we're giving them an account of what happened and they are all male and none of them can say the word penis out loud. <laughs> so one of the officers said, I'm so sorry, what exactly did he do with his penis? <laughs> I said, well, he was holding it 
at first. And the officer cups his hand by his belt, and he says, like, like this? I said, no, with two hands. So he makes his hands into a circle. <laughs> like he's holding a loaf of bread and puts it on his belt and is like, like, is this right? Like this? Yeah? I'm like, no, like what, what kind of penis looks like that? No, like, like a baseball bat, a baseball bat. So he puts his hands li- like a baseball bat really close to his belt, like really pulling it in there. And like, yeah, like that, but, but higher up. And he raises his hands and he just looks at me and goes, no. Because he didn't believe it was that size. But he went with it. And he said, well, then what did he do? I said, he started playing with it. And the officer goes, oh, like, like this? And he starts wringing it out. Like he's wringing out a towel and just like twisting his hands violently. And we're like, no, no, is that, is that what you do to yourself? Like, no, it's up and down, up and down. And we're miming it, like frantically, just like the guy. And then the officer's like, oh, oh, I see, I see. And he's miming it too. And then all of the other officers are doing the same thing. And all seven of us are just standing in a circle, jacking off these imaginary air boners. But remember, it's an open office. So my coworkers are just sitting around us, working, not even looking up. And meanwhile, all of these families are just walking past us because it's time for Books of the World to start. They're wondering why it's delayed. So they give us a break to go read to children. which we did, <laughs> and we, we, we actually kind of nailed it. Like, we did a really good job. And then we had to go to the police station to give an official statement. So I'm sitting in this interrogation room, tiny interrogation room, and I've been separated from Amanda so that we can give our accounts separately. <laughs> There's nothing in there but this like metal furniture with uh, no sharp edges, just like rounded corners. And it's kind of like green and shadowy in there. And like they outlawed smoking in buildings just a few years before, but it like felt like someone was still smoking in there. And I'm across the table from this detective, and he's just like a classic detective. He is smooth, he is competent, and he's like the kind of guy that can just say the word penis out loud. <laughs> And he is taking my statement like he is writing a crime novel. So everything I say, he repeats it back to me, and then he writes it down by hand in this um, novel that's going to become the statement that I have to sign. Only he adds just like a little something to everything I say. So when I said, that man showed me his penis, the detective said back to me, that man took out his penis, but you saw it and you weren't afraid. (laughs) You were just angry because he doesn't respect women and he needs to. (laughs) And when I said, I wrote down his license plate, the detective repeated back, you wrote down his license plate because you read Japanese and you know how things work here. And you wanted to bring that man to justice 
and set an example for other women to do the same. <laughs> does, does that sound correct? And I, I was like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that does sound correct. That's, that's right. Like, I sounded like a badass. Like, this crime novel has a hero and it's me. <laughs> so we get to the end and the last question he asks is, are you married? Like, oh, yeah, because <laughs> I had just gotten married just a month before. And the very last sentence in this 20-page handwritten crime novel that I signed says, because I am married, I know that what that man showed me was an erect penis. <laughs> So they, they let me out of the room, and I'm so excited to see Amanda again. I'm like, oh my God, what'd you sign? What'd you sign? And Amanda signed a different statement. <laughs> Amanda's statement said, I was so traumatized when that man showed me his thigh. <laughs> She's not married. <laughs> so how would she know? And the detectives, in their kindness, they wanted to ensure that there was no official document that would show that an unmarried woman knew what an erect penis looked like. Um, so remember the touch me, touch you bar? Yeah, from earlier, you can, uh, I forgot to mention, you can get dressed up like a baby and bottle fed at the touch me, touch you bar. And none of this is hidden. It's Pictures from the bar are on a sandwich board in front. There's a big neon sign outside, and there's a guy that comes around in a panda suit and tries to get you to go in there to go like, get bottle fed. And all of this is just next door to a Denny's. Like, it's not, it's not hidden. Like, on top of that, this region, you know how um, Japan has these regional mascots? Like the city will have some kind of an official mascot. Well, the most popular mascot in this region was Marimokori. And Marimokori is a human-shaped ball of algae with an erection. <laughs> and I don't mean he looks like that and it's a hilarious mistake. That's what he's meant to be. Marimo means algae and Mokori means in-your-pants boner. Like, that's, there's a special word for that. And Marimokori was everywhere. Like, he was on every kid's backpack. He was on every old woman's cell phone. He was on all kinds of, like, food packaging in every gift shop. He could get Marimokori everything. He would show up to the mall like a Santa. You could meet him. And there was this pull-string toy where you would pull his boner and he would talk. Like, literally Everyone on the island knew what an erection was. Like, there's no way she couldn't know. But they still made her statement that way. So we finish up. We signed everything. An officer comes up to us and says, we need you to go back to the intersection where it happened. No explanation. So get in my car. We drive there. When we arrive, the intersection has been completely blocked off. There's flashing lights everywhere. There's about a dozen cop cars. There's an armored van, an ambulance for some reason. And there's all these uniformed officers everywhere. And some of them are directing traffic and someone else has a megaphone and they're shouting directions at everyone. And we get to the intersection, we stop and an officer comes to the window and he says, 
is this exactly where your car was parked when it happened? And I said, yes. And then a sedan pulls up next to us. And the officer says, is that where the other car was parked? And I said, yes. And in the sedan was a detective. And his face was beet red. He did not want to be there. And that's when we realized that we were in the middle of a crime reenactment and that detective was going to play the flasher. <laughs> so <laughs> the officer gave the go-ahead to, um, to the detective <laughs> to start. And the detective scoops up his hips <laughs> towards the window and he stacks his hands on top of each other, two loose fists, like he read the account, <laughs> and he pushes an imaginary boner into the window. <laughs> and the officer says, is, is that accurate? <laughs> and it was. <laughs> it was perfect. <laughs> so the officer's like, okay, we can start. <laughs> But nobody gave me and Amanda any instructions. <laughs> and there's this photographer that was getting ready to start taking pictures. And this detective is like straining to push this imaginary boner into the window. And his face has just gone from red to purple. And he cannot make eye contact at all, unlike the real flasher. But <laughs> we're just sitting there like, what do we do now? And so I uh, turned back on Boom, I Fucked Your Boyfriend. <laughs> and we started making these, like, shocked Home Alone faces, like, while the photographer is circling and taking photos. And then we're like, wait a second, we have personas. What are we doing? We're not acting the right way. So I like, put up my biceps, and I'm like, you need to respect women. <laughs> and Amanda is like, oh, no, a thought. And my car is like, boom, I fucked your boyfriend. I stuck it in. And the photographer's just circling around. And the detective is just like, looks like he wants to die. <laughs> and it's an amazing reenactment. And reenactments are actually not that weird. Um, I mean, they're weird, but they're not uncommon. They're pretty standard in a Japanese police investigation. So like in the 1980s, there was a Japanese tourist who killed his wife in L.A., and he was tried in Japan. The Japanese police force sent a huge group of people over there to do a full reenactment in LA. And the American police force was like blown away by how intricate and detailed the Japanese investigations were. And so back at the intersection, the officer comes up and he says, could you please step out of the car? Okay, so we step out of the car and the detective steps out of his car, and the officer hands me a chalkboard with a case number on it. And we stand in front of both cars, the whole group, and we take a group photo <laughs> to officially close the reenactment. So with all of this evidence, they had enough to charge him. And I get a phone call a few weeks later and said, you need to come in and ID him. And I get there, and the first officer, the one who couldn't say penis, he greeted me, and he said, we caught him, and we held him all night, 
and I just wanted to let you know that we made him cry. <laughs> and he was so happy to tell me that. <laughs> and then he told me that the man was a gym teacher at a high school in the next town. Yeah. They picked him up at school and they told the principal what had happened and the principal fired him on the spot. So the officer takes me into another interrogation room, same metal furniture, same kind of green shadowy walls. And he opens up a little trap door in the wall. He says, it's a magic mirror. You can see him, but he can't see you. And Amanda and I have been planning this moment for weeks about what I was going to say. And Amanda was like, when you get there, you have to say, I think that's him, but I'm not sure. I need to see his penis to be sure. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then all of the officers who couldn't say penis would be like, oh, that was so shocking. And then the decoys would be like, are you sure? Like, do we really have to do that? But it wouldn't matter because it would be like this raw justice. Like, hey, you like to whip it out at an intersection? Why don't you take it out from the whole police station? Let's see you get a boner now. <laughs> but... But when the magic door opened, magic window opened, there was no lineup. It was just him and two uniformed police officers. And they made him stand up. And the officer was right. He had been crying. And his spiky hair had gone flat. And he could not make eye contact this time. I'm looking at him through this mirror. And I, I feel bad for him. Like, he hadn't even been convicted yet, and he was already fired. His life was ruined. It was a small town. He would get run out of town for that. I was like, I could taste all the metal furniture in the room. Because I hadn't been traumatized. I wasn't afraid. I, I wasn't scared after what happened. And like Amanda and I, we'd been laughing about it for weeks. We made up all these fake backstories for him, like hers were the best. Uh, one was that he would scare away any potential girlfriends because his penis was so big. So he thought if we saw it through the rear view mirror, it would look smaller <laughs> and we wouldn't be afraid. <laughs> but I'm looking at him through this magic mirror and he does look small, like all of him. So I didn't ask to see his penis. Uh, I made the ID, and they, they closed the door. The detective came in, and he told me the real backstory. When that morning, Amanda and I were eating breakfast at a cafe, and that man saw us, and he watched us eat for 15 minutes. When he saw us leave, he decided to follow us. And he followed us for about a mile, and he saw the red light as an opportunity. And he also thought he would get away with it, because he thought that we wouldn't be able to read his license plate number, because it has a Japanese character on it. And he thought we would be too embarrassed to call the police, and maybe wouldn't know how. So I stopped feeling bad for him. I stopped feeling bad because in that mile that I drove with him following me, I drove past my house, and if I had forgotten something and gone back for it, he would have known where I lived. 
And if that light had been green, I would have kept driving and he would have known where I worked. So the case never went to trial because I moved to Tokyo and Amanda moved back to South Africa. But that man, he lost a lot because of what he did. And those police officers, they made him cry and they made us laugh. And it's been 12 years and we're still laughing. And that detective, he gave me like a new persona. I am a badass and a hero for justice. And I know what a penis looks like. Oh, that's great. Uh, I don't think I'd like to meet that guy, but I was interested in the idea of meeting a Japanese man who is the Fonzie of boners. Uh, If you've ever heard the very, very first story I ever told on the very, very first episode of Risk is about the time that I first uh, went home with a Japanese, uh, young Japanese man when I was in my early 20s, and he made me tie my shoes to my balls. And uh, I was very bewildered at the time about why are we doing this, What, what is going on, and that story is, you know, kind of a classic. It's, uh, it's repeated all the time. But recently, like, someone who listens to Risk reached out to me and they were like, hey, I found some Japanese porn. Here's more people tying shoes to their balls. And it was the most fascinating thing. I, there was a, 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 finally, after all these years of telling the story and everything, like, seeing other people do it in porn videos, I was like, that kind of is... Sexy. <laughs> Interesting. Those, those shoes look good on his balls. There, there's a fella who does it and, and, and like will we'll do it like, and now, Adidas. <laughs> so you never know what you might find yourself uh, into uh, as life goes on. <laughs> All right, I want to bring up our next storyteller. By the way, you would have never known that Aaron had never told a story on stage before like that, huh? Holy camoles. And here's another, another newcomer. We're so thrilled for our virgins. Let's show a ton of love to her. She reached out to us, a fan of the show, and it's just been so fascinating and interesting working on her story with her. Uh, Please welcome to the stage, Tondi Davis! Thank you very much. Let me get... My story starts off uh, with the love of my life, David. I met him at church. Um, he was taller than me, so 6'2", finally a guy that's taller than me. Um, and we instantly had a connection. Uh, we both loved the Lord so much. Um, in fact, his dad was a preacher. So uh, we were just a really cute couple. We were always together, held hands, talked on the phone until we fell asleep. 
really cute stuff like that. Of course, we played the Who Loves Each Other More game, I Love You More. Um, instead, we just said, no, I won. So whoever won was the winner of this love game, which never ended. Um, even cuter than us was his family. It was like perfect mom, dad, and then the two sons. You could really tell how close they were because the way they talked to each other, the dad always referred to his wife as the queen. Not just a nickname, but it's just the queen. And they were really respectful. The boys said, you know, yes, sir, yes, ma'am. Really respectful. Um, David's dad, uh, Drake, was about in his 50s. He was pretty cool. To be a pastor, he was pretty, like, normal. He made a lot of jokes, dad jokes. Um, the mom was sweet, such a sweetheart. She had a really big head of uh, natural hair. She cooked, like, from scratch. Very sweet, just very all around, like really nice family. Um, and after a while, with me and David getting closer, I was accepted into that family, which was great. Um, something that I loved that I never really had. Two nice parents. For me, my upbringing was a little chaotic. Had an alcoholic mother and an absent father. So that was one of the reasons I was really into the church. Um, it was uh, one of the first times I felt really loved and had like a family, even though it was a church family. Talking to Drake, uh, David's dad, he um, would start you know, telling me things about scriptures, bringing up a little bit of stuff that I'd never heard before. However, I was very knowledgeable in the scriptures, because that's how cool I was. Um, so we would go toe to toe with scripture, and he would tell me things I'd never heard of that I didn't really believe in about um, women not preaching, and uh, the chosen people of God, and people who aren't chosen, lots of things like that. I'm not going to go too far into that. You can look it up. Um, so um, after a while, he won me over. Um, the word of God was the word of God. So after you proved that, nothing else mattered. So I began converting. Um, I began to change the clothing I wore. Um, that 100% thing in the Bible is absolutely true. And no cotton blends and nothing, 100% so hard to find um, no bras, no nothing, nothing cute anyways. So you wear your 100% clothing, women wear the skirts. At the end of our skirts, we lined our hems with uh, blue ribbon for royalty and fringes because we're royal or God's people. Uh, had our head covered. We had a few laws, the dietary law, uh, no pork, of course, um, only fish with fins and scales, so no shellfish only unleavened bread on the Sabbath, which were on Saturdays, but we didn't say Saturday, we said the seventh day, and we said the first day, second day, third day. We didn't, that's how we, that's how we talked. Some other laws were the civil law, how you treated your brother and sister, and those brothers and sisters are only the people that are chosen. So only the people determined by the Bible, and however else we determined if you were the people of God. So that would be you greeted them, with a certain greeting, shalom or shalom. If anything were to need a mediation, if you had marital problems, somebody was raped, anything, you would go to that elder or to the pastor for counsel, and he would use whatever word of God he needed to go through with that. A lot of other things, we didn't celebrate holidays. And then the people at my old church definitely started noticing that. I even changed my name. So after all that, people were kind of like, oh, she's kind of weird, and they kind of started rejecting me. 
but at the same time, I was pushing them away because they weren't this new righteous people. And in this religion, you really need to fellowship with the righteous. You're not even supposed to sit and eat with the unrighteous. So um, after I'm converted and I start doing all these new things, I start going to Sabbath with David. Sometimes David would take me or his car would be broken down, like most of the time. His dad would just come up and pick me up. Um, After a while, David's dad asked um, if I'm going to share this new truth with my family. And at this point, they don't really know, so I just open up and say, no, my family's not into this. You know, my mom, she's not going to be about this life. So he definitely relates to that. Um, And I tell him a little bit more about my upbringing, and he relates to me. He tells me about his dad. He was kicked out. I was kicked out. Um, and you're just a baby, you know, you're just out here alone, and you shouldn't be doing this alone, things like that. Um, After a couple years, uh, me and David get really close. We obviously start talking about marriage. We're now these new people, you know, chosen people of God. One of the things also in this uh, religion is you don't go into a courthouse. Like I said before, the elder would do everything. So if you're going to get married, you would go to the elder, You don't do anything legal. A lot of legal things, you just stay away from it. So for us, to get married, to make it official, we were just going to have sex. That's what the Bible says. So we were going to move out of Babylon, which is modern-day America. So we were going to move out, and we were going to get married. After we start talking about this, David's dad, Drake, starts kind of vetting me a little bit. You know, do you love my son? And I'm like, yes, of course. Are you sure? Are you a virgin? Big, big deal. Yes. Um, you know, have you ever watched porn? Have you ever did, had oral sex? Have you ever been with a woman? Lots of questions like this. Um, but I passed the vetting. Um, and at that point, uh, Drake tells me something, and he says he's never said it to any of David's girls that he's brought in. And that is that you're the one. And I'm not just saying that. You're the one. So I was so excited. I'm like, finally accepted into this family. They're adorable. I'm adorable. We're adorable all together. So fast forward. um, This is our second year anniversary. David planned something really nice. I don't know what it is. He always kept it a surprise. Um, But per usual, his car is broken down. So Drake has to come scoop me up to take me to him to take us on our date. So he picks me up. We're kind of chatting in the car. I'm really trying to get him to give up you know, where I'm going. So I'd say stuff like, oh yeah, David, here he told me, um, what's the name of it? And he'd just be like, oh yeah, you know, it's that one place over there. Stuff like that. Um, we're approaching like a traffic light. He makes a little bet, you know, which light is going to go first. Whoever wins rubs the loser's stinky feet. Something like that. <laughs> and I won, and we kind of laugh it off. But I did win, so uh, he's a loser. He says, okay, well, bring your sneaky feet up here, and I'll rub them. And I'm just laughing a little bit, and I'm like, no, that's fine. And he's like, no, I don't mind. Bring them up here. And I'm like, oh, no, it's so weird, because I'm wearing a long skirt, um, the one that his wife made me with the fringes on the bottom, and I'm wearing my headdress. But he insists, so I move my legs over to the left. Uh, We're the only ones in the car and we're heading towards the date. So as he's rubbing them, it's feeling a little bit weird, but I'm just like, whatever, I'm really excited, you know, going on the anniversary date. And then he um, asked, well, do they stink? And I'm like, no, of course not. My feet don't stink. And he smells them. 
And he goes, oh, yeah, no, they don't stink. And then he goes, can I smell them again? And uh, knots are turning. And he smells them again. At this point, in my, my mind is racing. I don't really know what's going on. I'm like, this can't be happening. I'm going on a date. This is his dad. Uh, it's, I don't know. So um, he's sniffing them again. And I'm really not even looking anymore. I can't look at him. But I can hear him smelling. <laughs> and it's just getting gross. <laughs> so I take a look over. I muster all the courage I can. And I look over. And he is just in my feet like a dog just like that um yes he was really into it and i'm like ew no um i'm really nervous um just thinking oh my god oh my god what oh my god um so then he says do you mind if i enjoy this some more i didn't know what that meant but that's the words he used and me not being able to say no or not feeling like I could say no, I said, sure, but, you know, really need to get on this date. Um, so he pulls over, and we're in a big parking lot, and it's uh, in the desert, so it's really hot. And he pulls over, and he turns the car off even hotter. I'm in my headdress, long skirt, all this stuff. At this point, he just goes in. He's devouring my feet. He's licking them. He's putting it in his mouth. He's moaning. Um, he asked, um, do you want me to kiss him? I said, no, you don't have to. I'm trying to be normal. Um, and he says, well, how about I kiss him, and then you let me know if you like it. He kisses him. I didn't answer, but he just keeps going, and he um, starts to unbuckle his pants. And I'm a little nervous now because I don't know how far this is going. And he puts his hands in his pants, and he's rubbing himself. And I'm just staring straight ahead and the sun is beating on me, and I'm like itchy and sweaty and hot and just frozen at the same time, not really knowing what's going on. Drake comes, and afterwards, he says, wowie kazowie. <laughs> that was good, wasn't it? And I say, well, we got to get going because David's expecting me for the date. So he looks at me and he goes, are you okay? Like none of that just happened. And I say, yeah, I'm fine. You know, let's go. We head inside. The first thing Drake does is he sees the queen cooking and he comes up from behind her and just embraces her and gives her a nice kiss on the cheek. And I'm just standing there like, what the fuck? And um, David is excited to see me, and he's hugging me, you know, excited for this date. And in my head, I'm still like, what the fuck? So pull it together. I say, you know, I'm going to go get ready and go downstairs. And I just hop in the shower, scrub the shit out of my feet. I'm just scrubbing. And I get put together, no time to freak out. Didn't really have time to process this. So I'm like, okay, going on this date. We do go on the date. It was really nice. My mind was preoccupied the whole time, and I felt like shit. Internally, I just felt guilty. All of this was my fault in my head, and I just felt terrible. So we start playing our game again, and David says, I won. And I go, yes, you win. And that shocks him because he says, well, I kind of thought that would be a game that we played forever. I did too, um, but at that point, 
you know, that's how I felt about it because I felt so bad that he won. Um, so the next time I see Drake, he comes and he looks like a puppy dog. He looks just so sad. And he says, I have a confession to make, as if I don't already know. Uh, he says, I like feet. <laughs> and I go, I can tell. <laughs> and um, he asked me, um, do you think bad of me? And I was like, no. He was like, it, something happened when he was a kid, blah, blah, blah. He has a foot fetish. Um, <laughs> and he goes, you know, I'm sorry. I never had cheated on my wife before or anything. And I had just been noticing your feet. I would notice your feet in our sermons when you would slip them in and out of your flats. I would notice when you took your shoes off. All the stuff that I didn't even notice about my feet. And he says that he's repented. And look at that. I already see you as a daughter now. So we sin against God. We don't sin against each other. We sin against God. So I've forgiven, been forgiven. We're going to go back to normal. It didn't go back to normal. <laughs> so I uh, thought that would be the last of it. It definitely wasn't. In fact, it would progress. He would start calling me at work all the time, um, calling me and complaining to me about his wife, his marriage, his family. All the things that I thought were perfect were crumbling, and I'm trying to help him and giving him scriptures and encouragement, and I'm like, no, that's not right. You love your wife. He would put his wife out, and that's not right. You love David, and all these things. Um, then he would show up at my job, and, oh, you work so late. You're just a girl. You don't need to pay for a taxi home, or you shouldn't be out so late, so let me give you a ride home but he wouldn't take me to my home. He would take me to his home where the foot fetish would progress. At this point, it had progressed and he uh, would just gingerly push my head down to his lap for a blowjob. After that happened, I remember just crying. I just felt so terrible. And he goes, well, you know what this means. What does it mean? He goes, well, that means you have to break up with David. And I'm shocked, and I'm just sobbing now. And I'm like, why? But why? And he says, um, he can't marry you because of what we just did. He can't marry you. And I'm just crying more because I'm really like, what the hell? I didn't really want any of this. And I'm crying. And um, he says, well, you weren't just crying a few minutes ago. Well, that was his response to that. So I do call up David, and I do break up with him. And he's shocked because we're a cute couple and we're perfect and he has no idea what had happened. And I make up something like, you know, we just need to be apart. And that lasted for two weeks because everyone could tell how miserable we were without each other, even Drake. So he eventually gave us his blessing to get back together because if you two love each other, then why not? Like it wasn't his idea in the first place. So we're back together. And I promised myself this time that if I let this happen again, I'll break up with David because it's not fair to him. He doesn't deserve it. This went on for about a year, off and on, maybe months or weeks in between, but it, it kept going. It kept progressing. Um, the last time it did happen, I said, okay, I'm going to break up with David. So I went home, and there was a neighborhood kid, not a kid, but neighborhood guy, 
and I go, hey, um, I need to smoke some weed. And he's like looking at me with my dress and my headscarf on and he knows all of this and he's like, nah. And I'm like, no, no, for real. Like, I'm gonna smoke some weed. And he's like, why? And I'm just like, it doesn't matter. So we smoke the weed. And um, afterwards, I go home. I have the best glass of orange juice I've ever had in my life. <laughs> that, that, the best. And then I make a phone call to David. And I say, um, I just say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And he's saying, what's wrong? What's wrong, Yadiah? My Hebrew name. <laughs> what's wrong? What's wrong? And I just say, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. Um, and he was like, well, did you cheat on me? I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And he goes, did you sleep with the neighborhood kid I just smoked weed with? And I was like, I didn't, but I knew that's exactly what I needed for him not to want to be with me. That would be the only way that we could really break up as if I was an aversion. So I never said yes, but I definitely led him to believe that. Um, I ended up moving away and living with family, um, but all this was still in the back of my mind. I still hadn't came out about any of this for whatever reason. Um, still kind of in this faith mentality of not going towards the police, um, which we refer to as devils. Um, kind of. Uh, so anyways, <laughs> so, so I move away. Um, and things are just eating me up inside, so I swallow a handful of pills, a whole bottle of pills. And I'm calling anybody I can talk to, but no one is really answering my calls. No one's answering my calls. Um, the church people I used to hang out with don't talk to me. My family at the time was not speaking to me, except for the ones I was living with. And David's not answering any of my calls. So I call Drake, and he's the one who answered. And at this point, I'm really calm. I'm really sedated, and I'm just like, um, well, I'm, I'm all done, and it's okay because I'm dying. And he's like, no, you need to spit out those pills right now. Think of David. What, what, what would this do to David? Um, I didn't care about that, so I didn't spit them out. And then he said, well, what about your little sister? And she is my world. And that was a changing point, so I... Um, get up and I tell my dad I need to go to the emergency room. Um, that story short, I'm alive. Mm -hmm. um, then after that, I was launched into therapy. And I realized that whole relationship through therapy and working through it um, is a process called grooming. And it's not restricted by age or gender or anything. Uh, but it's just a master manipulator who gains the trust of his subject or his prey. For me, it was about two years to gain that trust. He had exactly what I needed, a family, a father figure, and he was all of that until he turned. Um, so after therapy, um, I said, fuck it, and I told everybody. I told everybody. And, um, it's actually really surprising my family was supportive. Of course, in their own way, my mom um, called and threatened to kill them every day, every day, um, until they blocked or changed their number. And then my dad actually told me a little bit uh, personal stories about him. He told me his suicide story, and it was also in his 20s, 
and it was also after a huge breakup. So that was something that brought us a little bit closer together, and I was really shocked, but pleasantly shocked, at the support I got from family. And um, if that story sounds familiar to you, I definitely encourage you to get out and get help. As for me, um, I wear pants, I eat bacon, and I smoke weed. This is Andrew Bird behind me now, and we just heard from Tondi Davis. I'll tell you, I was I was so proud and so impressed with Tondi for stepping so far outside the comfort zone, letting us know the truth about what she learned from her experiences. We're always so moved when you, the listeners, reach out to us at the submissions page at risk-show.com to pitch us your stories wherever you are in the world, and we can help you workshop them from there. And you can find Tondi, by the way, on Facebook at Team Tondi, and that's spelled T-H-A-N-D-I. Now, one of our very favorite sponsors (laughs) is Audible, and that's because I am an addict of Audible. Today's show is brought to you by Audible. They have the best audiobook performances and an unmatched selection of the most exclusive content. Right now, I am listening to this full cast performance of Neil Gaiman's American Gods. You know, there's a TV show version of it now, but in this audiobook version they created... Uh, Ron McLarty plays Odin, Daniel Oreskes is Shadow, Oliver Wyman is Mad Sweeney the Leprechaun. It's one hell of a peculiar and surprising story, and the way they recorded it really brings all of this color to life. If you were listening to Neil Gaiman's American Gods on Audible right now, you'd experience things like the hair raising on the back of your neck or a shiver down your spine, because with an Audible sci-fi performance so powerful, you can feel transported to another dimension, even while you're sitting in traffic. So start a 30-day trial, and your first Audible book is free. Learn more at audible.com slash risk. That's audible.com slash risk. Now, remember the last time you bought a car? Oh, my God. (laughs) 
Was it a good experience? Going to the dealership, haggling with a salesperson? Probably not. I once spent an afternoon with a friend who was buying a car. It, it took hours all day. I must have been like five hours at this dealership a Saturday. It sucked. But I, you know, assume that's the reality of buying a car for most people. Then there's this thing called Carvana. Now, Carvana is the nation's leading online car company. You can buy a car online from over 7,000 certified company-owned cars, then have it delivered to you as soon as the next day. Or you can pick it up at the world's first coin-operated car vending machine. <laughs> For real, a car vending machine. And every car comes with a seven-day return policy. You can see if the car fits your life and return it for a refund if it doesn't. That's way better than a 15-minute test drive. Plus, Carvana doesn't have all the salespeople, so you don't have to pay for them. That means there's some serious savings. So skip the dealership and buy a car online. Check out Carvana.com slash risk to learn more. That's Carvana.com slash risk. C-A-R-V-A-N-A dot com slash risk. It's the new way to buy a car. Okay. Now we're going to move on to our final story of the evening from our show at the Vera Project in Seattle. This is one of the most unsettling stories we've ever run. Uh, this story concerns the sexual abuse of children, but it is also a story of tremendous compassion and heroism. So uh, without further ado, this is live from Seattle. I'm honored to be presenting to you Tim C. of the story we call Deliverance. My story has developed a little bit, the story I'm going to tell. I spent 20 years in law enforcement, 17 of it in human trafficking and child sex slavery operations. The latter 13 was primarily off-continental U.S. operations. To say I've seen the worst in man is a, a pretty mundane statement for me. The 17 years that I did this, I started out with, I'm going to save the world. Typical alpha male, badge, gun, got to do my thing. I remember very distinctly how bitter a pill it was when I discovered I could not stop human trafficking and child sex slavery, but I was going to make it as fucking difficult for these people as I could possibly make it. This particular story is one of my 12 defined traumas that I have uh, come upon in a lot of therapy. 
I was diagnosed in 2011 with complex PTSD to kind of round out why I'm identifying traumas. In the beginning, when I did this, the internet wasn't quite the juggernaut that it is now. A lot of our cases were literally VHS child porn and tracking people down. I picked up a case, a domestic case, and I say domestic because it was local to Washington. The biological father had taken the children, the daughter and the son, picked them up at a, a daycare facility out of sync with his normal visitation. Uh, when law enforcement attempted to contact him originally, he decided that it was a good idea to shoot at him, and he did get away. By the time the case reached me, it was a year later. The little girl was now nine, and the little boy was now seven. Human trafficking investigations, child sex slavery investigations, puts you at a disadvantage morally because you literally have to watch these things. You're not watching for the sex act, but you're looking through these videos, you're looking through this evidentiary material to develop where this is happening, who other potential victims might be. And when we came across some porn that identified the children, what we realized was this biological father was renting these kids out at parties and filming it. So he was making money in two different ways with his own children. I can taste the rage that I felt the day that I got this case. My partner and I had numerous hours together doing surveillance operations. My partner Jared made me look small. He was, he was almost six foot seven, 300 pounds. Very dark skinned black man, Southern Baptist. And as you can see, I'm super white. So we, we always set a very odd impression to people when we'd saunter into new locations. We were able to track this guy down and I'm not going to divulge all the trade secrets, but we tracked him down in Southwest US. We sat on the residence long enough to get a schedule and kind of get an idea for the comings and goings and what's happening. Hopefully, perhaps identify additional uh, pedophiles and traffickers. The evening was, it was a cool desert kind of climate in the evening. The lights went out consistency was in play. Uh, Jay and I decided, okay, well, we're going to go ahead and we're just, there's nobody else there. It's the, him and the kids. Let's just go ahead and get this done. Oddly enough, despite our size, we actually are quite sneaky. <laughs> and I'm pretty handy with a lockpick kit. We made entry. Everything was nice and quiet. And I remember the smell of incense somewhat overpowering because it was like a mixture of different types of incense. It didn't really have anything to do with the case, it didn't have anything to do with anything really, but I just vaguely recall that unusual scent. We cleared the first two areas as we went back towards the bedroom and when we came to the master bedroom our subject was there, the fugitive, biological father. He was wearing women's panties. His daughter laying there next to him naked. There was a variety of, of sex toys 
this is really hard for me, so forgive me, bear with me. It was hard to grasp. I wasn't a father yet, but it was surreal. The room smelled like sex. All these bizarre toys and, and things around her in bed. Her little face, she was sleeping. I think that's the safest she could ever be is when she's sleeping. She was a beautiful little girl. And it always struck me as odd how such a perfect little being was in such a fucked up situation. That rage came back. And when I say rage, I'm talking about a man, me, I've been shot, stabbed, beaten, run over, crashed a plane. When I say rage, I'm Scottish and I get fucking pissed. And I, 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 I wanted to shoot this motherfucker in the face, bad. I took my sidearm out and I lowered it down to his face and I knelt down a little bit poked him in the forehead and stood back. There was a, a sidearm on the night table next to him. And I pointed at it. I gave him one of these. I had fully intended on shooting him in the face. There was no maybe. There was no can I do this? I was going to fucking shoot this guy in the face. And I felt this enormous soft hand on my shoulder and Jared whispered to me he says she's been through enough and I, I understood considering what she'd been through you know what's the guy being shot in the face but you know legit I didn't need to add to it he had absolutely ravaged these children in these films, renting them out of parties. The little boy was down the hall, laying on a little sofa bed thing. He was wearing a little Superman cape. And it just was so fucked up. It's such a, a normal thing, a little boy sleeping in a Superman cape. But he was naked, just the cape. It may not even been a fucking Superman cape, I don't know. It was just a little red cape. Everyone was awake at this point. We'd secured our subject. I had possession of the children at that moment. It was quite a brouhaha, a lot of cops, a lot of forensic people showing up. We needed to wait for that state's equivalent of Child Protective Services to come and get the children back home to their mother. I was able to get a phone call to the mother, let her know that we'd found them and they were safe. She knew a little bit about what they'd been through and she said, well, how are they? I didn't, I didn't know what to say. I said, they're fine, they're, they're fine, they're safe. We're gonna get them home. Your babies are coming home. And she just broke down and cried on the phone. I didn't know what to do. And I said, listen, I, I need to, I need to wrap this up. I'm gonna go feed these little guys and I believe we're gonna get them flying out in the morning. 
Jared went to take care of all the admin stuff. For some reason or another, just kids gravitate towards me, and I'm a big fucking goofball anyway. So I took him to like a Denny's kind of place in the town there. Dressed appropriately, of course. Which, a sidebar to that, he had a wardrobe for them for role playing at these parties when they were rented out. He had a little gladiator outfit, a little superhero outfit, and there were actual videos of old men having sex with him in his little outfits. Same thing for her. It was actually a challenge to find normal fucking clothes to put on them. They ordered ice cream and chicken nuggets. A little, little glimmer of normal. I know that now as a father. At the time, I thought, well, what the fuck, right? <laughs> a little chicken, a little ice cream. And as we're talking, the little girl is very clearly the, the pace setter, the control writer for the two. She looked out for him. She made sure that he had a napkin. She made sure that he had a spoon. She, she was fastidious in her nature with him, looking over him. It was like watching a 35-year-old mom. She asked me, what are we going to do now? I didn't really know how to respond to a nine-year-old from a technical aspect. I just said, honey, uh, we're going to get you home to your mom. I'll probably get you on a plane first thing in the morning. We just got to get a few people together and, and make sure that you're safe and, and we can get you home. Well, who am I going to go with? I don't know, honey, but one of the people from the local police will they'll take very good care of you. They're good people. They'll take care of you, I promise. Well, we know you now. Can we go with you? Honey, I, I can't take you with me. I have, I have another case I've got to go to. I'm almost halfway there now. So I need to go help another kid. But I promise you the people that will take care of you, they'll, they'll look out for you and you'll be safe, I promise. And she looked at me She reached out and held her brother's hand and she looked at me and she said, am I not pretty enough? And I was confused. I didn't understand. Why? Why? What, what do you mean, honey? You're beautiful. Well, am I not pretty enough? You don't want to take us? I'll give you any sex you want. I'll fuck you however you want to be fucked. From a fucking nine-year-old. You can't process that. And I told her, I said, honey, that's not how things are. I said, I don't have any kids yet. So I'm not really good with these kind of topics, honey, but I, I want you to know that that's not how life needs to be. We're going to get you home to your mama. 
We're going to just put all this behind you. And you see, you'll see. Everything is fine. She offered me a blowjob under the table right there. I felt disgusted by it. I relived that moment. I had my sidearm out. It's crushing weight. And I wish I'd killed that motherfucker. I couldn't grasp how anybody could do this to a child. I couldn't, I couldn't grasp how somebody could do it to their own child. Even then, before I had my first child, I just I couldn't process it. I told her, honey, really, all I want to do for you is get you home to your mom. You don't owe me anything. I felt like I was talking to an adult, but I was looking at a nine-year-old girl. She was absolutely the most beautiful little thing. She was too grown up. She'd lived three lifetimes by the time I found her. I managed to get her to feel relaxed and, and understand that absolutely had not turned a page in her life, but we finished that book and we're moving on to the next. We got her home to her mother, her and her little brother. They did okay for a while. Eventually the little man got into trouble. He's in prison now. And eventually she killed herself. And then that was tough. That was my first field loss in, in my heart. That was my first field loss. Somebody that I felt like I'd got them and maybe I can get, you know, just get their life turned around. The bio contributor, piece of shit. He went to prison. And I believe, as I recall, I, I don't know why it's such a mental block. I believe it was in 2002 he, he was killed in prison. And I'm okay with that. I desperately wish that I could have been the one to do it. However, I understand I had a job to do. I did it. Unfortunately, up until 2011, I would run across 11 more traumas, cases, situations that would affect me just as profoundly. I didn't realize until I'd retired in 2011 that most people in my line of work only last five or six years, and I did it for 17. I think of her only when I see a little girl that reminds me of her. The little boy, he was, he was, he was a champ, you know. The little girl was the focal point in the story for me because she was an old soul by this point. This is one of those cases that I will never forget. I'm thankful to be retired. I'm thankful to have a calm, meaningful life. My youngest just graduated. So now I get to look forward to being a grandpa, eventually. Not yet, but eventually. <laughs> Believe it or not, both my daughters have picked out good boyfriends. And yes, they bring them home. 
Yes, they know what I've done. But I, I don't worry about my girls. They will kill a man in a heartbeat. <laughs> I know this may sound gut-wrenching, and I know it may sound a world away from what you can grasp. But I tell these stories for two reasons. One, selfishly, to learn to process and deal with my PTSD. And two, I want people to know that this happens, especially here in Seattle. Two ports and an international border. A lot of shit going on around here that y'all don't know about. Consider your surroundings, consider your children, consider the people that you love, never take them for granted, and all the other analogies that might flow along that thought line. I don't regret my 17 years, but I'm ready to be retired. And that's my story. For this week's episode, folks, this is Florence and the Machine behind me now, and we just heard from Tim C. Tim and his family expressed to us afterwards just how cathartic it was for him to share that, and we really do hope to have him back on the show soon. Two organizations you might want to know about that have more on this issue are Taught Not trafficked.com and arcofhopeforchildren.org Okay, one last message from one of our sponsors and to tell you about it, here is Risk's producer, J.C. Cassis. 
Hey guys, remember that ModCloth is your go-to spot for fashion that's as unique as you. They have funky, cool hipster stuff and also basics for every day. They have everything you could ever need. I actually tried ModCloth myself and I ordered a super cute sweater that came just as pictured on the site. It looked great on me. It was a whole new silhouette that I'd never tried before, but I loved it and it came quickly in a cute little box, just like your ex-boyfriend. No, I don't know. <laughs> it came quickly. In a, okay, never mind. Um, so anyway... Um, I enjoyed my shopping experience very much on ModCloth.com, and I think you will too. ModCloth believes that fashion is for every body size and shape, which I really appreciate because I have square hips and giant boobs and muscular thighs and all these kind of things that don't fit into clothes for just teeny little skinny birds. So their exclusive line of apparel comes in a full size range from the teeniest, tiniest little skinny body to 4XL. And that's awesome. Snag all your summer essentials with this exclusive deal. You can get 30% off your order of $100 or more by entering promo code RISK, that's R-I-S-K, at the checkout at modcloth.com. Make every day extraordinary at Modcloth. And now it is time for me to let you know where you can come see Risk Live. The next Risk Live show in Brooklyn is on June 30th at the Bell House in Brooklyn on June 30th. Then on July 1st, we're in North Adams, Massachusetts at the museum called Mass Mocha. The theme that night is revolting. That's July 1st at the Mass Mocha in North Adams, Massachusetts. On July 8th, we are in Washington, D.C. at the Black Cat. July 8th, D.C. at the Black Cat. The theme that night is one of a kind. On July 15th, we're in Philly. We are in Philly on July 15th at the World Cafe Live. The theme that night is Revelation, and we're still taking pitches for that one. July 15th, we are also back at the Bootleg Theater in Los Angeles. July 15th at the Bootleg in Los Angeles. On September 9th, we're in Salt Lake City, Utah at the Urban Lounge. The theme that night is Unexpected. Still taking pitches for that one. And we have a lot of other dates that we're working on right now. Remember, you can pitch us anytime from anywhere in the world, and we'll keep you in mind if it looks like we might be coming near you. Otherwise, we do radio-style stories, so we sometimes record people over Skype. You can pitch us at the submissions page at risk-show.com. There's an explanation there of how it works. You can always email us if you have any questions. And... If you go to thestorystudio.org, there's all sorts of ways you can get training on how to do storytelling. You can workshop your stories by doing one-on-one training with me over Skype or downloading one of our video courses or maybe hiring us to work with your staff. We've worked with all kinds of big clients, Google, GE, Citibank, Pfizer, all kinds of wonderful clients that we've worked with teaching storytelling skills as communication skills for public speaking or just, you know, day-to-day business communication. Anyway, that is all at thestorystudio.org. If you love Risk, if you love what we do, be sure to comment on the particular episodes on the comments, the listen pages at risk-show.com. Also leave us a review at iTunes. Those reviews get a lot of attention and bring people to the show. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram at Risk Show. And on Twitter, I am at the Kevin Allison. 
folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Hey folks, this is Kevin. Hey folks. Hey folks, this is Kevin. Hey hey folks. Hey folks. Hey folks, Kevin. Hey 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 folks, this is Kevin. Hey folks. Hey folks. Hey folks. Hey folks. Hey folks. This is this is this is this is this is Kevin. Hey 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 folks, this is Kevin. Hey Kevin. Hey Kevin. This is Kevin. Hey folks. Hey folks. This is Kevin. Hey folks, this is Kevin. 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 Folks, 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 this is Kevin. Hey 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 Kevin. Hey folks, hey, hey, hey folks, hey, 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 this is Kevin. Hey guys, it's Kevin. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, okay. That was me. No, that was not me, folks. This is Kevin.